What are you passionate about? What gets you excited? What motivates you to do good or even great things? It's easy to find out what a person is passionate about. You just have to talk to them. And all of a sudden, a topic comes up. Uh, I had coffee with my parents who happened to be here this morning. Welcome, Mum and Dad. They don't often come to live streams, but they're here this morning. Uh, and among other things, I was very eager to tell them about the latest tramp that Pip and I had done. I showed them on a map where we'd gone. I told them what it was like, how far it was, and what we'd seen on the way. And for anyone looking on, they would have realised that I was passionate about tramping. Today's passage from John chapter 2 is all about the zeal, the fervour, the passion that Jesus had for the worship of God. Here's what happened. Jesus had gone to the temple in Jerusalem with his disciples. Uh, the temple was, of course, the centre of worship, culture, and politics in ancient Israel. Uh, think of it as the beehive to Papa and the rebuilt cathedral all wrapped up into one. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was beautiful. It was um, partway through a long-term refurbishment program. When we complain about a year or two being out of a building, uh, think of the temple. They were out of it, or part of it, at least over 46 years. Uh, and Herod the Great had, had sta started this refurbishment pro program in 20 BCE. However, when Jesus arrived, he did not at all like what he saw. There were money changes and there were people minding birds and animals. You can only imagine what it must have been like. It had the atmosphere of a kind of country open-air market or AMP show all wrapped up together. It must have been intensely noisy and smelly and chaotic. And Jesus was incensed, so he wove a whip of cords and then he must have broken down the animal pens, drove away the sheep and the and the cattle and their minders, and then he tipped over the money changers' tables and drove out those who were selling pigeons. And he said to them all in verse 16, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. And it says in verse 22 that his disciples remembered the incident. I suspect that might be an understatement. <laughs> when Jesus burned with holy anger, and cleanse the temple. This was not the Jesus meek and mild stereotype we often think of. This was a prophetic figure burning with holy anger who strode right into the middle of a buzzing, highly organized marketplace and in a few short minutes of dramatic action shut the whole thing down. Of course they remembered so what are we to make of all this? Um, why did Jesus object so much? What motivated him? And what are the learnings for us today in 2021? Well, first of all, the money changers and those who sold the animals had a very important role in the whole temple enterprise. It wasn't as if they hadn't been invited. This was not an activity that was peripheral to the temple operation either. It was actually essential. As I said, the temple was the centerpiece of Judaism and it was believed that the presence of the living God dwelt in the Holy of Holies at the very centre of the temple. Of course, Jews believed that, that God was everywhere, but in particular was present in the Holy of Holies. And the human response to this holy presence was to make the prescribed 
sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins and to facilitate a right relationship between God, uh, this awesome holy God, and the people. And so naturally there was a need for people to access animals in order to make sacrifice, as prescribed in the Old Testament. And there was a consequential need to use the appropriate coinage to purchase an animal or a bird. But the trouble was that the currency in normal circulation had the head of the emperor stamped on it. And because we are dealing with the majestic and holy God of all things, this currency, which was thought of as utterly profane, there was the image of a person exalting himself as God. How can we possibly use that coinage within the temple precincts? The answer was no, we had to have special uh, temple coins. Tyrian coins was the name of them that were used solely in the temple precincts. So you see, uh, what I mean by the sheep and the cattle and the pigeons and the money changes were not peripheral. This process of currency exchange and the purchase of animals was at the heart of the temple system. The trouble was that all the booths and the tables and the animals and the bird cages had begun to completely dominate. Um, for example, all this commerce, and it was commerce, uh, the temple actually grew quite wealthy through this whole process. Um, all of this took place in the court of the Gentiles, the exterior, outermost court of the temple. And the original intention was that the worship of the true God of the Jewish people would be so attractive to pagan peoples who worshipped many gods uh, that they would want to come and learn about Israel's God and worship Israel's God themselves. And that was the point of having the court of the Gentiles. After all, did not the Old Testament itself say, and for example, as many uh, passages I could quote, I've chosen Isaiah 56 verse 6. It says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That was the great vision of the Old Testament. It wasn't just about the Jewish people. They were to be a light to all the nations who would come to the temple and acknowledge the God of the Jewish people. You would have noticed the emphasis on the Gentiles in that short passage, just one verse. They were expected to be in the temple area, learning about and worshipping God. But here we have God's own people being a stumbling block to them. They had turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace where there was supposed to be the feeling of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer and devotion. There was the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of worship and praise and prayer, there was the noisy din of commerce. So, if Jesus, of course, Jesus smoked with holy anger, and it was because he was passionate and zealous for the things of God. And the people of God who should have known better, they were at fault, and they were actually getting in the way of others seeking after God. Sometimes the thing used to facilitate the main thing becomes the thing itself. 
for example, some of the beautiful wilderness areas of our country, to continue the, the tramping theme for a moment, have become so popular among tourists that we make tracks, we build bridges and visitor centres, we have guiding and rafting and helicopter companies giving them permission to take people into these beautiful areas. But suddenly we wake up and realise that the main thing is no longer the main thing. There's no wilderness left. There's only a spoilt environment. The sacrifices and the money changes have become a serious distraction to the main thing. And they had the effect of turning people away from worshipping the true and living God. So, what about our Sunday worship? Ooh, closer to home. How would Jesus feel if our worship was irreverent, superficial, cold, lifeless, sloppy, self-indulgent, ill-prepared, and theologically thin? I think he would want to shake us up and snap us out of it. Because Jesus was zealous for what? For the honour of God. And we should be too. And that should motivate us to bring the best we can to our worship, to plan well, to play well, to pray well, to read well, to, to participate in the best and most wholehearted way we can. Because it's about the honour of God. But it's tricky, isn't it? I remember attending church when we lived in Auckland and our children were young. And Pip and I would get up on a Sunday morning, get them dressed, have breakfast, get them into the car. Well, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> we would drive to church, try and find a car park, ringing any bells. Um, put the youngest in the pushchair, get the baby's bag, walk into church, get past the welcomers. I'm not talking about our welcomers. Um, try and find a pew for the whole family. And all the while, we would be trying to avert World War III. Uh, I do uh, want to add just a little thing. Uh, there are many zealous and well-meaning people in churches, of course. And one woman came up to us and we'd finally, after a lot of um, effort, got the kids into this back pew. We saw it was empty. Amazing. This pew was empty. Thank the Lord. We got them into the pew. There was no other empty pews in the church. It seemed to have almost been reserved for us. Thank the Lord for that. This woman came over to us and said, oh, excuse me, that's where the youth group sit. Could you find somewhere else to sit? Oh, man. At that point, I wanted to disappear into the floor somewhere. But Pip, quick as a wink, suddenly assessed the situation, turned to this well-meaning person and said, where would you like us to sit? And she suddenly realised that it was a whole pew full of one single family. Oh, and she suddenly backed off completely. Said, "Oh no, um, okay, we'll find the youth somewhere else to sit." But it's um, you know, getting to church. I acknowledge it, it. It's it's a big mission at times, is it not? Um, but here's the thing: this is not about keeping children quiet in church. That's not what it's about. Um, as if there were, they were the equivalent of the bleating sheep. No, that's not what I mean at all. I think those seeking faith understand that it's tough being a parent. 
And bringing children to church is a big, it's a big thing. But what does turn people away is not being spoken to or having exclusive in-language or people being in cliques or pe people behaving self-righteously or sort of holier than they are, which you don't get very often, but occasionally you strike it. Or being one sort of person at church and not following through on Mondays. These things are the equivalent of the pandemonium and hubbub that Jesus experienced in the temple. We might refer to these things as noise that distracts people from seeing and it's experiencing the true and living God. I want to close with a final but very important observation. And it's this. When Jesus made a whip and drove out the animals and people and overturned the tables, he effectively stopped the entire operation of the temple for a short period of time. He cut the commercial chain of activities that supplied the temple with the sacrifices that enabled the whole enterprise to function. It was a wee bit like cutting the power cord to a stage show. And this is what scholars call a prophetic action. Yes, Jesus uttered words that were very important, but it was primarily his actions that made the dramatic statement that the temple was no longer fit for purpose. The temple has been superseded. And note Jesus' words to the Jews who challenged him. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple he was speaking of was his own body, of course. Destroy this temple is a reference to his crucifixion, which he saw looming. But in three days after, he would rise again. In other words, Jesus is claiming nothing less than the reconstitution of the entire worship of God's people around his own person and mission. We worship God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why worship today is so important. That is why we should have the same zeal and passion for Christian worship as Jesus had for the temple. Because it's about the honour of God. It's about the drawing of new people into God's family and not getting in the way of that. And it's about gathering around Jesus Christ who has reconstituted God's people, not around a physical temple, but around his own person. When we come to worship, we find our true identity in Jesus Christ. Contrary to what some may think, we don't worship God because he needs it. Some um, opponents of Christianity, you don't think deeply enough, think that that's what it's all about, that somehow God has an ego need for people to get out and worship him. That is just simply untrue. God needs nothing. But we do worship because we need it. We, we become like that which we worship. We become like Jesus Christ. As we worship God through Jesus Christ, we become more like Jesus. We become good and merciful and forgiving. In worship, we become like God. That sounds almost blasphemous, but it's not, if you think about it and look more deeply into it. I am passionate about tramping. But dear Lord, let me be more passionate about worshipping God.
What are you most passionate about this morning? Join me in being most zealous in our worship of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.